0: Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club, guest
1: author of the month. Lynn Joffe is the author of The Gospel According to Wonder B. Lazarus, which is a dense, multi themed, rich, clever, and humorous story of wonder, the myth of the wandering Jew. Lynn's background is in copywriting, and she has been the creative director of Creatrix for many years. The book, however, was conceived and developed and is the result of an MA in creative writing bits, which Lynn received cum laude in 2017. I'm Dominique Malherber, and I asked Lynn to tell me more about this extraordinary and unique telling of wonder, which begins with a quote at the beginning from Eleanor Roosevelt, which says, well-behaved women really make history, Lynn. I wonder if you could start off by telling me a little about your own background in terms of your various influences and experiences, just to start off. Okay, thank you, Dom, Nikki. As a lot of people know, the surname gives it away. I
0: am of the Hebraic persuasion, as we say. I was born as a Jewish kid, but I wasn't raised in the fold. I only came to South Africa when I was 14 years old, and to be told, you're a woman, you're a Jew, you're white which was triple shock to me. So while I was growing up, I've always been a reader. My family are musicians. I, I grew up, you know, reading before I could walk kind of idea. I was accused when I was six years old of killing Jesus by a little kid at school who came up to me in Scotland and she said, are you a Jew? And I said, I don't know. I went home asked my mummy. Am I a Jew? She said, yes, you are. There was, you know, that kind of six year old discussion. So I came back to school and said to Lindsay Haddon, yes, I'm a Jew. And she said, you killed our Lord. And I said, I've never been anywhere near your Lord. I had no idea. So it it was instilled in me very early that there was something that I had done that my people, who I didn't even know who they were, had had done to offend some great swath of culture and of people. So I grew up at, not with a, a, exactly a chip on my shoulder, but I always knew there was something very strange. I've never particularly had, I've had a few anti-Semitic moments in my life, but tied in with the idea that I was writing for an MA and I wanted a theme and The Wandering Jew is a glyph from the middle ages which was re-engineered back in kind of almost into the bible that attacks or enforces this idea that anything that happened in history that was bad was blamed on a particular race of people or class of people who throughout history has been the jewish people so i looked into the notion of the scapegoat i'm a white woman in south africa there's scapegoats everywhere but through history if you look at one idea that the jews were always blamed for whatever happened for the plague, for the wells being poisoned, for stealing little children to make matzah for their Passover meals, the most horrific, demonic ideas. And then if you look at the Middle Ages, when a chap called Roger of Wendover, who I actually have in my book, aka Bendover, put this down as a a monk into a kind of formalized sense. I was very interested in the idea that throughout the ages, no matter what country, what history, The Jews were blamed for whatever events took place. Then you have to move into being a woman. (laughs) And we can't speak about this because women, women's rights are human rights, et cetera. Women in the world, and particularly in the Jewish world, they were in the world of the family, the domesticity, if we're pregnant in the kitchen, which I haven't ever been. So I wondered, it was a premise of what if the wandering Jew had been a female? And because of my own transgressive take on that,
1: I turned her into a comic figure. Comic she is indeed. She is hilarious. But going back to your question of the premise and the woman, I want to know a little bit, I know, because I've read a little bit about your MA and your academic work before you wrote the book. And I'm intrigued as to know the process that you went through about how to write this in terms of it being a fictional autobiography. Or is it autobiographical fiction? So I know that there's a, you know, there's often the blurring of character and, and persona. Tell us how you went about that. So when you do the MA Bits, you have to do a proposal, then you have to write the creative work, then you have to reflect
0: on it, which is very nice for my mind. I'm a bit of a thinker. When I started the proposal for this, which was always what if the wondering Jew is a female, I was gonna use my own memoir my own experience in life to speak about how I had come to South Africa as a very young girl, not knowing what the politics were and grew and transcended and et cetera. And when I began, I just wrote and wrote and wrote as myself, as as the I of myself. And then at some point there was a transformation moment. So it was the Me Too era. Everyone was talking about their Me Too experience. So I started to write my Me Too experience, which was that I was assaulted at the age of 15, by a man twice my age who was the youth leader of our Jewish youth group, et cetera, which I always thought was quite cool and that, you know, he loved me and we'd get married and through my maturing years realised that actually it was kind of paedophilia in a way. I mean, is it rape at 15? So I started to write and I've written about this all over the years. It becomes very personal. I don't want to out anyone. This person knows who they are. And then I wrote this sentence, he had me in the shadow of the temple. Now, Temple Shalom is a synagogue on Louis both Avenue in Orange Grove. And when I looked at that sentence, I thought, what if it wasn't Louis Both Avenue, 1970? What if it was 33 AD, and what if it was the temple? What if it was the temple in Jerusalem? What if this writing that I was doing was kind of channeled through someone who was me, but not me? I mean, a lot of authors say, you know, I just sat and took dictation, but I spent the first year only doing character. She wasn't even doing anything. She was thinking. It was a kind of internal belly gazing in a way, which was funny, but nothing was happening. So as I continue to write, Wonder, the character of Wonder Be Lazarus, took over, if you like, or wrote beneath the who I am. I'm very much like Wonder. It's it's almost a cosmic buildings roman, as, as I've been told, of a woman's sort of trajectory through the world to claim her voice. And I always had a thing about women claiming their voices. So that's how it began.
1: It's wonderful. And I think the what ifs in the book is what distinguishes it from so many other novels. Lynn, I have to say that it is rich in themes. It has got so many underlying themes. So I wanted to just touch on, on some of those. And then I do want to go back to the thing, the thing of women, since this, this is the woman's zone. But I want to just talk to you. It's got history, mythology, patriarchy, magic, realism. It's music. It's feminism. And then, of course, it's all the Yiddish. And I wanted to know in terms of language and using language, which is unique in this book and anachronism, what were you thinking about Yiddish? And tell me, because you seem completely fluent in the language, which I think can sometimes be overwhelming to the reader, but adds so much depth to the novel as well. How have you approached that? And, and tell us more about that.
0: I come from
1: a Lithuanian...
0: Sort of historical background, but um, as the generations went by, it just becomes anecdotal and nice little words. But I tapped into that Yiddish. My brother said to me, You know, I never knew you could talk Yiddish. I, I can't. You know, I'm not fluent in the language, but I'm not fluent in French. There's little bits of French. I'm not fluent in, I didn't want, for example, swear words to come through. So she's created her own. Her figs, her pomegranates, her apricots, her peaches. If you, you know, you may not know what a pomegranate is when you begin, but you do after a while. And there are a lot of fantastic Yiddish phrases, like a schmekel, which is a little schmuck, which has got its own double meaning. Because from the Jewish people having been scapegoated for so many centuries, there's a kind of a humor. There's a kind of a Cultural humor of self deprecation, of self ironization that I've always had in order to survive, in order to have come to South Africa as a little girl who didn't even know I was Jewish. And and here were all these Jewish kids. Nobody spoke Yiddish. I kind of channeled the Yiddish. And then, of course, no one spoke Yiddish in 33 AD. I know that. But because she has to be almost a discreet personality throughout the 2000 years she travels, why not bring it back to the beginning of time? Yiddish is not an everyday language except from very orthodox Jews for whom this book is not recommended because I can culturally appropriate my own culture, which is what I do in all the different geographical spaces. I wasn't raised speaking it. My grandparents peppered their vernacular with it, but there are some unbelievable expressions that can express from the character because I really do believe that there's no fiction without character. And because she wasn't me, not the way I speak, but by weaving this almost ancient, I almost see it as an ancient language, but of course it didn't exist 2,000 years ago. But because of the characters, Chutzpah and the way that she approaches the world, she has a subjectivity that she can, if you like, impose on her circumstances. And quite often she actually meets, she meets a eunuch who actually happened to be one of the tribe. She meets a Sidonian crossdresser who also recognizes it's it's I think they call it a shibboleth Mm
1: -hmm. when you
0: when 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 it's almost like a dog whistle to somebody who knows what you know but it's kind of under the surface
1: yes perhaps just for the sake of the reader to give a sense of the voice that you use which is so unique and so strong I wonder if you could read a little just a short chapter on that okay I'm going to read from the beginning of the book Mm -hmm. um I must just mention that the
0: reason I made her, she became Wonder B. Lazarus, was when I re-engineered it to the beginning of the times of the temple, Lazarus rose from the dead. She's accidentally cursed with immortality, which you'll find out as you read it. And then I thought, what if she was the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Jesus? Lazzie, I call him in the book. What if she is the, a biblical character that I've now extracted from the dominant culture and made my own because, of course, women in the Bible don't really have a whole lot of say in anything, but it's it's funny. So I'll read to you from the beginning of the book where Wanda encounters her little brother practising his shofar in the yes. in, in courtyard. Nassie didn't have to do kitchen duties. He was practising his shofar in the courtyard with the chickens while Martha and I had our hands full. I could see him from the window, pursing his clefted lips to the blowhole and wheezing a few breathy parps into the chafed afternoon air. He hadn't quite got the first long tequia note right. Will you stop that racket? Ma moaned from beneath her migraine. Lassie, let me show you how it works, I shouted from the scullery. You're a girl chick. You're not allowed to touch it. Says who? I dropped my Hamid's basket and ambled into the courtyard. It is ri- He wheezed. The holy horn is forbidden for maidlers. For fig's sake, Lazzie, give me a chance. I'll tell Zayda. It's going to be trafe if you touch it. Zayda doesn't have to know, I said. He's at the temple all week for Pesach. Now hand it over. I grabbed the horn from his protesting grasp and puckered up to the pointy end. Give it back, wheezed Laz, or I'm reporting you to the Sandy Bedmen. Sandy Headmen, I corrected him. You're the one with the cheyder chops, schmeckleface. face. snatched the shofar back and drew breath again. It sounded like the bubbles we sibs blew when we were trying to turn farty blame on each other at the Shabbos table. Then Lassie's rasping became more laboured and suddenly he fell to the ground, teeth clenched, eyes rolled back to the whites. His body arched as if a great cord was pulling him up to heaven by his wishbone and then dashing him mercilessly back to earth. Martha, bring a spoon! I screamed at my sister. Milk or meat? Martha yelled back. This is no time to quibble. It doesn't matter. He's swallowing his tongue. Martha flung a canadler ladle through the open door. I wrestled it between my brother's gritted teeth. More help! I yelled. Hadassah stood behind the kitchen curtain, immobile.
1: Then it's wonderful. I mean, I wish you could read so much more from it, just to, to give an idea as to the language and the tone of your voice. So what I want to ask you, this has been a journey for you, this book. It has been conceived of, you know, it has been a long painstaking process through an MA and five years. And the result is this extraordinary book. And I wanted to ask you what your plan was in terms of going ahead, in terms of an audio book, because I know that you've spoken about that. How are you moving on in terms of the audiobook and, and how is that going to work?
0: I think it's quite important to mention because you said I was a copywriter. My religion became radio. First time I ever went into a radio studio, I had a feeling I'd never had in any synagogue. I couldn't believe that I could write things and people could say them and sing them and act them out. So I've always had, and I think since birth, I've always had a very oral approach to words. So you could, in a way, say that it's a very long radio play. I do a lot of dialogue, which was, in a sense, criticised at some point because, I don't know, fictions can only have 20% dialogue or something like that. And, in fact, I recommend this to every author. Read your book out loud. Read your words out loud and see how they go. So I did it in reverse order. So I wrote the book. I heard it, if you like, in my head. And after the book was published and during COVID when we were just lying about doing nothing... Um, I live in a sound studio. My husband's a sound engineer. And he said to me, the only way I'm going to read this Lynn, is if you tell it to me. And so we've been in studio. I've done voiceovers for years. I've produced for years. It's a double-edged sword because the attention to detail is insane. So it was almost in a bizarre way, a very, very, very Advanced proofread, (laughs) which is interesting because a lot of authors and I've written the book, I never want to see it again. Mm. And because I've had to almost do it as a kind of a second iteration, I like it. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. still has its resonance. I'm doing a lot of accents, you know, Caiphus Cohen, who's her who's the highest priest of all. I actually did in a Yiddish accent. And it's very nice, but actually it's funnier in a very British accent,
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, what in Hashem's
0: name has taken place? And, I mean, people do know that I I have connected with Stephen Fry, who, of course, is the audio reader par excellence, darling. And so he has given me quite a few good tips. Speak slowly. um, Don't show off too much. And read as if you were reading to one person. Of course, you know who that is, darling.
1: (laughs) That's wonderful advice from an extraordinary reviewer of the book. which which is an incredible feat in itself, Lynn, I have to say. So I wanted to just talk back on the the feminist theme, and and I I hope the book has brought you the joy that I think it will have brought to many, because it really is a hilarious book, even though you sometimes do sort of double-step yourself in terms of trying to understand the the, the Yiddish terminology. I think it, it almost just, you flow over it just because it's so funny. But I wanted to just go back to your feminist theme And just ask you whether you feel that this is something you said that you didn't know or you certainly didn't feel it initially that you were this feminist. And I think we all question ourselves as to what on earth feminists are supposed to be like. And I want to know whether whether you feel this book is appealing then to feminists in particular, or did you, you didn't, you certainly didn't write to a particular audience, but now in hindsight, when you say, what, what are your reflections on the book as a sort of a feminist story?
0: It's a brilliant question. So academically, it admits the masters. It didn't really, in a sense, come up in conversation because we were talking about character and plots and language and all of that. And when I did my proofread for, for the MA, which you're allowed to have somebody, you know, ha- helping you check your spelling, my proofreader, who is also quite an academic woman, said to me, what is your feminist positionality, Lynn, and I said, oh, please, really, do I have to? So she put the notion into my head. It was quite, it wasn't re-engineered. It was right at the end. I never wrote it to be feminist at all. And in fact, when I edited with Alison Lowry later, I wanted to keep the word patriarchy out completely. And we had many arguments about it. I think it's in there once only. So I did a crash course in feminism, first wave, second wave, third. I mean, I've known about it, but I had to collect it together And this idea of a woman's places in the world and and what Eleanor Roosevelt said is, in a sense, has always been my positionality. I've never understood, you know, you go into a boardroom and you say something and all the men ignore you. So now just speak some more. I've never perceived myself as a particularly beautiful woman. I don't think it does pretty girls any favor to be pretty. So I was kind of under the radar, one of the boys. I've, I've lived my life very much in a kind of a masculine mode. I run a company. I have to earn money and buy stuff. So in a way, this process of writing the book brought me back to my feminine. But the feminine and the feminist, which is what I write about in my, in my proposal and in my reflective, remains with me to this day. When you open the feminist package, if you like, you start seeing things that you'll never go back to. So for for the Orthodox Jewesses who are maybe listening, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to the back of the shul again. For whatever reason Yahweh said, we must go to the back of the shul, all of the Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, puts the women in a box in a particular Mm -hmm. position, which is very good for us because darling, you know, you don't have to do all the prayers because you're closer to God. It's almost like read it again with a feminist slant and reading it again, I see that there is a feminist slant, and it's a dirty word still. All humans should be feminist. I don't, you know, look at what's happening in the world right now. Why are women Mm -hmm. behind the burqa? And I was very careful not to offend any religious sensibilities, but I probably have. Mm -hmm. Who said there's a man with a beard in the sky? What happened to the goddess? And, in fact, I'm very concerned about what happened to the goddess in the Bible because I had to read so much about the consort, God's consort, Asherah, who's been turned into a pole very nice poll but who is the womb of the world okay. so i can actually kind of get quite on my high horse about it but again the lightest touch i think laughter is recognition so if and people have told me they've laughed out loud and if they laugh out loud that's great if they don't understand the yiddish move over it if you don't know what a pomegranate is actually female genitalia um, but if you use pomegranate it's the lightest touch and when you realize what it is oh she's talking about her Bits, yes. which of course we can't even say, even on a women's own. So I think that women who don't see the feminist in their own lives perhaps need to dig a little deeper.
1: Interesting. Because we've
0: all been captured by the patriarchy, even the men.
1: Interesting. I think everyone has a perspective on it. They just have to delve into, as you say, find out exactly what they are. But we all need to be a, a feminist, Ala Adichie's book. Lynn, I'm trying to wrap up, and it's, it's such a difficult task because this book has so much in it. But I want to know from such sort of an in-depth, rich kind of novel, what are you planning or how will you follow this great act? And are you indeed pursuing something else? What could it possibly be?
0: I registered for a Ph.D. on the 1st of January of this year. And never mind what I'm doing, that you sit down every day and write. How did I finish this entire thing? I did it over a very long period of time every day. And all of the great writers will tell you about the routine of sitting down at the typewriter and bleeding. So I did bleed a little while. I don't really need to do a PhD, but I like the academic side of it. I I like the thinking that goes into the creativity. So there are a few things. One is, and in one of the chapters, in fact, in Constantinople, Wonder keeps the Sultan busy by singing him a little song each night and then stopping at the climax and starting the next day. I have an idea, it's actually a a Hebraic thing. Kol Isha means the voice of the woman. It's an old ancient Talmudic thing. And what it says is that the voice of the woman is inappropriate. You can interpret the word whichever way you want. There's 101 days left till the end of the year. And every day for 800 words a day, I'm going to write a, a wonder type story of the little girls who were the little sultanas who were trapped in the basement in the seraglio. And then I'll choose. And there's another novel which I had in my in me for years again autobiographical fiction of an event in my childhood of a very, very famous comedian who committed suicide in our home and the aftermath of that, which again, we could talk for a long time about wow. fictional facts. Wow. So the, the whole point is to keep writing. But I beat myself up if, if I don't... Get up at six and work until nine
1: and that
0: has been a little hard lately.
1: You have proved the fruits of the labor are are rich and rewarding and and I wish you all the very best. I find I, I honestly don't know of a book that has the same depth and uniqueness as this novel and I can't wait to see what you're going to produce next and I just wanted to close with details of where the book is available the book is available at all good bookshops, but particularly uh, exclusive books or otherwise from the publishers who are Mojaji. Otherwise, if you want to look up more about Lynn's processes and the beautiful graphics and everything else that is connected to this extraordinary novel, please go to her website, which is www.lynjoffee.co.za. And Lynn, thank you so much for being part of the Women's Own Authors Meeting. All thank the best. you.